Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome back to the Rob Manis Show. Why does Ray Epps get cover from 60 Minutes, etc.? cetera? Uh, you know, all the media that gives him cover. Well, my guest today is was an independent journalist on the ground at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And he wrote almost a 10,000-word report about what he did that day. And the FBI still tried to get him to admit to a crime that he didn't commit. He's covered trials like the Oath Keepers from the courtroom, uh, and that is why I wanted to have him on the show. We need factual information right now in this country more than ever about everything, uh, but especially about what did and didn't happen on January 6th. Steve Baker's an independent journalist. The, uh, the pragmatic constitutionalist is how I ran across him on Twitter, and he's one of the very few Americans with the courage to report the truth about what he sees and experiences. He's just published a piece about Ray Epps' post-60 Minutes uh, interview that clarifies why, why many people still believe that Epps is some kind of government operative that instigated at least a great portion of the riots that occurred on January 6th. Steve, sir, welcome to The Rob Mana Show. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time, man. You're, you're a busy guy, and uh, I wanted to get you on the show for quite some time. Uh, I first ran across you, like I said in my monologue, uh, uh, when Julie Kelly uh, from AM Greatness was sharing your stuff out of the courthouse yeah. uh, on the Stuart Rhodes trial. And, uh, and oh, wow. those, I think, four, first four or five folks uh, that did that. Uh, uh, and... Uh, the surprising thing, Steve, is that there weren't very many people, if at all, doing what you were doing in that trial. Yeah, it was a lonely room, uh, particularly <laughs> if you were on my side of the political aisle. There were yeah. there were a lot of reporters in the media room. On any given day, there would be 20 or 30 mm -hmm. in there. And finally, the Epic Times sent a young uh, beat reporter down to join me. She had actually been sitting up in the courtroom itself, but which was tough to work from because you can't bring your electronic mm -hmm. devices into the courtroom itself. So they do have a media yeah. room with large screens down there and audio coming into the into the media room. And so it's easier to work there because we can use our laptops. And she finally came down and joined me. So I, she she's a 27 year old Romanian girl that works for the Epic Times. And she became okay. my best buddy for the next nine weeks. <laughs> of that yeah. Well, I followed uh, every day. I would check in on your your threads from the night before uh, after I discovered you uh, because there really wasn't there just nobody was telling the story uh, in a in a factual way. You know, yeah. I mean, everything's got a twist to it. It seems like these days. And uh, what really impressed me was the way that uh, you were telling the story about what was really happening uh, and asking the right questions. Uh, but one of the things that I didn't realize at the time, and I found out later as I was reading more of your stuff on Substack uh, and everything, is that you were actually on the ground on January 6th. How did you come to be there uh, in that particular location? Well, it, it's a long story if I gave you the... the, the uh, uh -huh. Uh, the, the, the more expanded than the Reader's Digest version, but I'll, I'll give you the short version very quickly. When the uh, COVID lockdowns happened in early 2020, uh, they, when I say they, government took my job away from me. I'm a professional yeah. musician by trade, have been in the music business for over 40 years, and I play music 
That's what I do for a living. I'm a trumpet player. I'm a singer. I had three bands at the time. And then all of a sudden, as we learned uh, two, two weeks to flatten the curve became two months and then became almost two years. Uh, I effectively was not allowed to work for almost a year and a half at all. And so during that time, I decided to ramp up this side of my, uh, I wouldn't call it at that time a career. It was it was really more of a hobby. But I'd been writing for 25 years, doing doing uh, political and social commentary, that sort of thing, news analysis. I I would I had my blog and I had you know social media presence all over the place, going all yeah. the way back to CompuServe and AOL, and then they became MySpace, and MySpace became Facebook, and then Facebook became blogging, that sort of thing. So I had been doing that for, uh, as I said, for uh, over 25 years. And then all of a sudden I had all of this free time on my hand, hands. And so I started traveling a lot during the lockdowns and I traveled to 28 states, actually going from state to wow. state, town to town and meeting with followers of my blog. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would do, we would do uh, what I, what I called my meetups and, Sometimes it was in private homes. Sometimes it was in restaurants that were open. Some of these places were uh, operating as almost as speakeasies during the lockdowns, depending <laughs> upon what state we were in. But we were we were having a great time, and I was having a great time spending all this uh, all of this uh, uh, lockdown time on the road, meeting with people. And then I finished the first run that I had done uh, in uh, on actually New Year's Eve of 2020. And then I went back home to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live, and I basically washed all my clothes and intended for January 6th to be my first uh, uh, stop on the next leg of my tour. Okay. And yeah, and so and it was <laughs> it was not because I'm a Trump supporter because I haven't been, and it wasn't because I. Uh, expected anything like what unfolded that day, but I was there specifically to cover an event the, of which I expected it to be unlike anything uh, that had preceded it before. And again, not knowing what it would become, but yeah. there was, there was an anticipation uh, from Trump's messaging and from some of the other messaging from, from his followers and hangers on that there was going to be a big, a big, uh, release of information that day. Maybe it was the Kraken. Yeah. You remember, you yeah. remember Sidney Powell talking about releasing the Kraken. Well, I thought mm -hmm. maybe that would happen that day. So I loaded up my bag with my camera, my, you know, my tripod and my man on the street microphone. And I was going to go out and I was going to interview people afterwards and see what they thought about this uh, big release of information, mm -hmm. obviously regarding the election. Right. And to be Quite frank with you, it was it was a nothing burger from the stage, from the rally stage at the ellipse. The speeches revealed nothing, not even Trump's. And mm -hmm. it was very cold that day. I was there with another writer. Uh, uh, I won't name him, but he's a writer of some esteem. And he and I uh, traveled up from North Carolina together for the event. And so we were we were freezing and we were bored and we knew that the the events that were scheduled were moving towards the Capitol later that day. There were scheduled events yeah. and marches and that sort of thing. So we wanted to get ahead of that and we also wanted to move. And so we mm -hmm. took off walking at a very brisk pace from the uh, Washington Monument lawn and work started working our way to the Capitol. And by the time I got to, uh, for people that are familiar with the area on the west side of the Capitol where the reflection pool is and right. the Peace Monument, by the time I got 
got there, we could hear sirens rolling up and we could see uh, Metropolitan Police in their fluorescent uh, vest streaming down the steps from the other side of the Capitol down to the lower terrace. And I looked over at the other writer and I said, well, that's where we're headed. And we broke out in a sprint to that direction. And by the time we got there, the, the battle was fully engaged. And then the day unfolded from there. So, so on your way down there, and I'm, I'm very familiar with it. I, I worked at the Pentagon for a couple of years uh, when I was on active duty. So I, I used to jog up the, mm. up the mall and all that mm -hmm. to the Capitol and back and those kind of things. So on your way up there from the Ellipse, Washington Monument area, I mean, what were you seeing as far as people uh, were concerned? I mean, the speech well, wasn't over when you left there, I, right? Yeah, I left uh, almost exactly uh, halfway through his speech. He, he did okay. not take the stage until 11.57 a.m., and that was an hour late. He was supposed to start speaking at 11 a.m., and that threw all the other scheduled events um, uh, out, of, out of kilter at that point. And then he stayed on the stage. He finished speaking, I think, at 1.11, then he left the stage at 1.16. Well, by 1.10, I was already there at the, at the uh, reflection pool. Okay. And so we, we saw thousands of people already peeling off and heading that way. Most, I would assume, had the same idea that we did. They just wanted to get moving. You know, the temperature that day wasn't extremely cold, but the wind was yeah. you know, 25, 30 miles an hour. And so it was just miserable. It was cutting and biting. And so being able to... To, to, to get a good brisk pace going and get the blood flowing was, was our mm -hmm. primary objective at the time. And as I said before, because of the size of the crowd at the Ellipse and at the Washington Monument, we wanted to get ahead of that. So yeah. that was what we were doing. And then on the way over there, we saw the, uh, just the average uh, workaday, middle-class American Trump supporters, MAGA people working their way that direction uh, of all ages, all types, uh, there was an interesting aspect of that that it didn't dawn on me till later and after I started looking at my own videos is that all the way from the time we arrived at the Washington Monument Lawn at 9.30 in the morning and then all the way in our walk over towards the, uh, uh, the Capitol just before 1 o'clock, not a single law enforcement officer ever entered my frame in my camera. Not once. Not anywhere. Wow. And that was not something that I noticed in the moment. Mm -hmm. But when I started doing frame by frame analysis of my videos, that was the thing that one of the first things that just really leapt out at me as something very strange and very odd. And then of course, by the time we got to that, as I said, the reflection pool in the peace monument area, the, the restricted area barricades that had originally mm -hmm. been up, of course, the famous Ray Epps uh, breach yeah. there on the west side, those were all gone. In fact, again, upon, you know, just being part of that walk over there, by the time we arrived, there was no sign whatsoever that there had ever even been a restricted area. There were no do not enter signs or area closed signs. There were no bike rack barricades. The, um, what they call the snow fencing had been cut down hmm. and removed and hidden. And this all happened in a very, very short period of time because that breach that Ray Epps was there for were the first, um, uh, assault really on law enforcement officers that took place where, 
Carolyn Edwards of the Capitol Police was pushed over and hit her head on a concrete step and was knocked unconscious. That happened at 12.52 a.m. So I was there just 20 minutes later, and there was no sign whatsoever that there was a restricted area previous to to our arrival. So when uh, when you got past that point, or when you passed that point, uh, just like you've written, I've seen you write about it many times. You had no idea that yeah. there was ever a, a restricted area there. Quite frankly, I, I, I've been there during national elections for the president mm-hmm. and everything, uh, and I don't recall ever seeing a restricted area around yeah. the Capitol on that day. Right. <laughs> right. You know, so I would I would have been very surprised to see that too, or to know that it was even. Uh, uh, even there, I think that's, is that the reason why the FBI really wants to, wants you to admit to committing a crime is that you entered an area they say is restricted, but you didn't know it was there. Well, that was a real focus of their interview and they didn't call me until gosh, it was about eight or nine months after the event when I, when I finally got a call. <laughs> And of course, by then I was clearly on the record by multiple stories that I'd written, videos that I had done, interviews yeah. that I had uh, participated in. Uh, I had had my own videos had been broadcast and used by the HBO documentary, the New York Times documentary by then, uh, had been used by news services all over the world. And so there was no um, you know, hiding the fact that I was there and I had no reason yeah. to hide the fact that I was there. And so by the time they called me and I remember it was, uh, it was about, I think it was a Thursday morning in August. And I actually had, I was, I was still doing my, my touring. I was, I was still traveling everywhere and I had an event. I think it it was a suburb of DC. I think it was in Renton and I was supposed to speak to a, uh, uh, I think it was a libertarian party meetup group up there on Friday evening. And on Thursday morning, I got a call and the guy introduced himself and hi, he said, hi, this is special agent Doss of the FBI. And, uh, just wondering if you'd have a few minutes to talk. And I said, well, what took you so long? <laughs> yeah, that that's what, that's what I was wondering what you said to him. That's what yeah. I would have said to him. Where have you been? <laughs> and he said, and, and then he said, well, I see that you're going to be in Renton tomorrow night. And I was just wondering if you were going to be here early enough that maybe we could, you know, sit down with you for a couple hours and talk and, uh, you know, just talk about your day there on January 6th. And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, actually I'm planning on being there early, but, uh, the truth of the matter is, is I'm sure my attorney wouldn't be able to be there with me. So I probably not something I should do. He, he was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, we, we can, we can uh, reschedule that when it's convenient for you and your attorney. And that's what happened. I turned it over from that point to my attorney, gave him agent Doss's phone number. And I never spoke to them directly again until the interview, but in that interview to get to your question, they were very focused on trying to get me to admit to some level of criminality. Now, by the time we actually had the interview, we actually had a, a, an aborted interview where my attorney and I showed up at the uh, FBI field office one day here in North Carolina, and they met us at the door, two of the special agents, and they told us, hey, we have a problem. We may not be able to interview you today. And I, 
I thought I thought maybe there was some national emergency going on. Maybe yes. you know, maybe ISIS or Al Qaeda had thrown some more planes into some more buildings or so. I had no idea what was going on. It's just they had an emergency or something that was going to prevent them from doing yes. the scheduled uh, interview. And they came back um, from the back rooms about a half hour later, and they said, "Well, here's the problem." He said, "Because of your status as a member of the press, we have to receive um, permission. It's in the U.S. Code. We have to receive." Uh, express written permission from the attorney general's office of the United States to even interview you. We cannot question a member of the press without that permission. And I went, okay, great. So uh, then there was some negotiations between my attorney and the department of justice. There was a proffer agreement made. Uh, Basically my uh, uh, interview was uh, set up in such a way that nothing could be used against me that I said in that interview, unless I perjured myself, only if I perjured myself, would I be subject to any um, uh, penalties for what I said. So anything I said in that interview, even if I incriminated myself truthfully by anything I had done, they would have had to get me on another testimony or on the stand or under oath in some other capacity in order for that be used against me. So I had no reason to perjure myself. So I answered their questions truthfully, but they really kept drilling down on trying to get me to admit that I knowledgeably entered a restricted area at the time. And that was at each level and each step of my progression weren't because I did eventually follow the story inside the Capitol building. Right. As many other journalists did. Absolutely. I mean, there's video from journalists all over the place, uh, yep. both independent and, and linked uh, journalists to the uh, legacy stuff. The uh, so is it because? Do you think it's because this is an opinion question? So, do you think it's because yeah. the, their narrative is so so pinned to this obstruction uh, charge that they try to get people on to to beef up the sentences and those kind of things? The obstruction charge, the uh, insurrection insinuation, because obviously there's been no charges of insurrection against anyone. They've managed to get it up to the level of seditious conspiracy with some of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, but uh, uh, no insurrection, although they still, to this day, that's the words that they use. That's the word that, that the politicos, the politicians, the journalists on the left side of the media they still use that word insurrection all the time. Although, as I said, there has been no one charged with actual insurrection. So considering they spent several hours with you, uh, and, uh, and we see all these people, I call them the MAGA grandmas and grandpas, <laughs> yeah. a lot of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are even going to prison for a certain period of time, or they're asking for prison time that's lengthy considering the types of crimes we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and by these things, I mean the folks that were nonviolent, you know. Right. Uh, uh, you know, so, so the nonviolent crimes, considering all of that, uh, you know, you must be absolutely stunned that this Ray Epps guy has not at least been uh, charged with something. Well, I'm stunned on several levels. First of all, uh, there is every reason that he should have been. And I have had many discussions with several uh, mainstream, large news agency journalists, uh, particularly because of my time there uh, in D.C. during the Oath Keepers, the first Oath Keepers trial. I had a lot of time to spend and have have meetups and lunch and coffee and breakfast with some of these guys. And so there were a lot of discussions that uh, circled around the differences of 
uh, what I would call selective prosecution of certain witnesses, the, the, particularly the, the uh, widely ranging differences in sentencing for people that had committed or pled out to the exact same crimes. Why would one individual for what I call the glorified trespassing charge be sentenced right. to three, six, eight months in prison, whereas another person only got two years probation, a thousand dollar fine, and you know uh, maybe a few hours of community service, something like that. So there was a, there was a lot of disparity in the sentencing. So we had a lot of time to talk about those things, and. And one of the things that was very, very difficult to get these um, mainstream uh, journos to agree to is that Ray Epps should have been just as um, uh, well, he, he should have received, if not at least the minimum uh, uh, accusation, arrest, charges for the four basic misdemeanors, particularly, uh, which, which, is, which is so evident to me, and as I wrote in the column that I released last night, was the fact that if anybody knew that he was entering a restricted area that day, it was Ray Epps. He yeah. went through three different breach lines in which the first one was clearly marked, clearly designated closed area with signs on every section of that fence fencing that was put up. It was clearly guarded by Capitol police officers. Yep. He was there. He whispered something in Ryan Samsel's ear and five seconds later, boom, the first assault against a law enforcement officer takes place. They pushed that fence over and uh, Carolyn Edwards fell back, hit her head. And then he broke out in a dead run to the next line. And then from the, Capitol closed circuit television camera, we could see that when the second line burst through at the very point of its breach, who was standing there? Once again, Ray Epps. Yeah. And then you fast forward from there uh, over an hour and a half later, when the final West side battle line, which was on that lower West terrace, which I filmed myself for right at an hour, but when that one finally collapsed at around 2.30, 2.35, he was there yet again. Now, there, there's, there's not cam I haven't seen camera imagery of him being at that singular breach, but that was more of a, a giant, just, it was a huge pullback. It was a, it was a, there was a point where obvious commanders from the Metropolitan Police said, we're done. Let's go. And they all started turning about a hundred officers started walking inside that tunnel or going back up and around to their vans. If they were Metro PD, that sort of thing. Yeah. When I read your article about that particular timing event, it made me wonder, uh, and maybe you did see it, uh, where in time and location, the relationship of the non lethal munitions being fired into the crowd, were you around that area at all? Is that the area where Epps was at? Yes. Uh, that yes. last was that the last one. Yes, okay. and and of course the there's and this is where I part from some of my own uh, uh, J6 investigators that are out there doing this independently. Is there are there's a lot of accusation that the Capitol Police or the Metro Police were the ones that 
elicited the violence from the crowd by the release of these less than lethal music munitions. And, and I'm sorry, but that's just not the case. That's factually errant. And it's very important for those of us who are doing this to endeavor to get every single detail absolutely right. And as I've, as I've talked about in many of my articles, I wrote a 9,500 word first column about what I experienced that day and what I saw that day. And I published it a week later on January 13th. And I go back and I can look at that and I can find that I made some uh, errant assumptions or, or observations. And, but it was what I had available to me in terms sure. of data at the time. And then I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a strictly hard news guy. I do comment. I take what I see and then I expound mm -hmm. on it yeah. by my opinion. And, and, and by my experience. And so I, uh, I know that I got a few things wrong in my second uh, column, which was another very long one. It was only about 3,500 words though. I, I wrote a, wrote a column that came out on February 24th. So six weeks or so after the event. And that one was, was entitled who was up the chain on January 6th. And I was exploring who was giving the commands that um, precipitated the things that I saw happen before my eyes. And again, there were things that I saw at the time or things that I knew at the time that I may not have gotten exactly right. But I've made attempts over the last two years to correct those errors as data and more video and more evidence has come sure. forth. And, and, I, and I think that that's the, the, the only fair way to do this. And so one of the things that I've been trying to get across to some of these other guys, uh, independent journalists and, and those who are, are really hardcore, you know, uh, on, on the right side of the, of the uh, political aisle, very defensive about the, uh, the MAGA crowd that was there that day. They have kind of drawn a line in the sand to say that if, if the police had not acted first, you know, uh, metaphorically drawn first blood uh, first. That, that is the storyline. Yeah, that the MAGA crowd would not have reacted in the way they did, and that's just not true. I was um, uh, not at the 1252 initial breach, but we have camera angles from all sides that clearly show that the provocateurs on that front line that were standing mm -hmm. there with Ray Epps, they initiated the first push and the first breach. That was, there was no provocation whatsoever coming from the right. Capitol police that were on the other side of that line. And they were in fact, the first ones to draw first blood with the assault on, uh, Carolyn Edwards, officer Carolyn Edwards. And then they moved very quickly up to the second line established in the police Capitol police established a second line. There was a semi-permanent black metal fencing that had been put up, uh, for the inauguration. It was already right. yeah. so there was a, a clear uh, area for them to form a second line that they retreated to. And then hundreds and hundreds of more people were coming up and coming up and, and gathering. And then that's when the second breach happened. There had been no munitions less than lethal or otherwise released up at this point. So once again, the crowd aggressively and violently pushed through that police line and established another breach. The, the, the police officers pulled back yet again to, there were some steps under, they call it the lower terrace, but even that terrace is tiered a little bit. Yeah. And they pulled up on some steps up there and then they were bringing out bike rack and they established a bike rack barricade right there, which right. they held then for about an hour and a half. 
And that's where, when I see pictures of the crowd kind of, uh, you know, it's an empty space with police officers inside the perimeter there, and then the crowd is just built yeah. up around this. Is I think that's what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. uh, later in the, in the day after the first two breaches there. Yeah. The, the, uh, now, now, uh, did you see any of those non-lethal munitions being used oh, at all? Yeah. Or? I've got a ton of it on, on my own video, uh, yeah. because by the time I, I, I started rolling tape, as they say at one nineteen, and the very okay. first thing yeah. that I captured at one nineteen PM were individuals on the civilian side of the police line receiving first aid. And there were already law enforcement officers on the other side receiving first aid. So the battle had already been going on at that, at that moment. Well, since yeah. the first breach that, uh, you know, getting close to half an hour. And so that was, uh, uh, a shock for me because obviously that's not why we went to DC that day. But then, yeah. as, I, as I said, as the story developed, I had no other choice but to follow the story where it went. Mm -hmm. And so for the next hour, I began to uh, capture video of what was happening on both sides of that line. And, you know, I, I amazingly, I, Ray Epps never comes into my camera frame, but I caught the, you know, the QAnon shaman and a ton mm -hmm. of other of the famous, uh, more famous characters that, that were involved in, various escapades that day on both sides of the line. I captured quite a few of them. When you talk about provocateurs at the beginning of the line, uh, you, I saw Epps, I've seen that video of uh, when he whispers in the ear of uh, Ryan, is it, is it Sanson? Uh, Samsel. Samsel. Uh, and, then, and then immediately, I mean immediately, the barricades go down yeah. and the first yeah. officer is hurt. Uh, right. Or those, uh, I mean, I know Epps is a, is a, a MAGA guy. I'm, a, uh, I'm not even assuming that. I mean, he was an Oath Keepers leader. And, uh, mm -hmm. he, he says it uh, and those kind of things. Who were, those, who were those other guys like this kid, Ryan? And uh, he, he looked like he's pretty young. In the, uh, do you know? Do we even know who those provocateurs were? Yeah, a lot, a lot of them have been identified. A lot of them have faced charges, have been arrested for either violence or, or um, misdemeanors of, of, of different sorts. But uh, there's quite a few that are still unidentified, quite a few that, in, that were in that initial breach there. There were some Proud Boys in that initial breach. There were mm -hmm. unidentified uh, provocateurs that we are still hoping to find out who they are. And uh, we have clear uh, facial recognition on many of those. Some of those are uh, on the FBI's uh, January 6th most wanted list. Most of those are on what we call the, you know, what they call the sedition hunters, which is a open source online sleuths. Uh, most, of course, they are, they are working directly with the government right. and they are uh, attempting, they spend, you know, I don't know how many of them there are doing this work, but uh, we know that they're not only here in the United States, but they've got people in Europe sitting in their the mother's basement all day long on the, on the internet, trying to source out and find out who these unidentified individuals are. But uh, it, it's a mixed, it's a really mixed bag. I mean, we know that John Sullivan was there at that initial mm -hmm. breach, of course, and he is a self-professed Antifa BLM activist. Yep. Uh, nobody can deny that he is the most prominent of those. I've, I've interviewed his brother, and then there are uh, as a, a handful of individuals who are 
very who were or are, whichever the case may be, rabid uh, uh, MAGA guys, and that they threw themselves into battle that day, believing that they were on a mission from God and that uh, they were justified in doing so because of the violence that was um, uh, that the police responded to with less than lethal musician munitions. And then, of course, because once they got into wrestling matches and fist fights on the on the front line, there were some people that were drug across the police line and got the you know what kicked out of them by the police and mm-hmm. maybe aggressively, uh, maybe over aggressively. But in the heat of that moment, in the heat of that battle, if anybody was there on that line, you'd understand that passions were running hot on both sides of that line. And, and as I, I wrote in my Capitol Police series, I have a three part series on that. I, 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 I wasn't trying to play both sides. I'm just trying to be an honest broker. And yeah. one of the things that you have to do is you have to put yourself in, you put yourself in the position of a Capitol police officer who showed up that morning thinking it was going to be a regular day at the office and you weren't notified of anything in particular or special going on that day, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, a, very, a very huge specific. part of the, it's a huge yeah. part of the it's story. It's a huge yeah. part of why the conspiracy conspiracy theories thrive and justifiably so is because of the lack of information that was given to the Capitol Police frontline officers that day. But I I wrote in part one of my series, imagine if you were a Capitol Police officer and all of a sudden your radio goes off at 1252 or one o'clock and you're being called out to the West Terrace and Mm -hmm. you come running out. You don't have any body armor on. You don't have any uh, protective gear. You don't even have um, uh, eyeglasses or face masks or or so much as a bicycle helmet. And all of a sudden you run out there and people are beating on your, you know, your fellow officers and they're Mm -hmm. trying to penetrate this line and then as you look over their shoulder you're seeing coming down the mall thousands thousands of people are coming and you have no idea what their intention is you have no idea why they're coming and all you're seeing is there's violence right now happening right here there's blood i mean it was bloody back there behind uh, the police line there was blood everywhere. The, these guys were being hit. Uh, those, remember that black fencing that I referred to? Sure, yeah. The, 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 those provocateurs started breaking that fencing apart into sections and started using it as clubs and spears and were launching those spears. A cop got hit right in the face and then just gushed blood by one of those sharp, jagged edges from that aluminum. I think it was painted black aluminum. And, and, um, uh, and those, those spears were just being launched over and over and over again uh, throughout that day. And, and so there was a lot of violence coming from the protester side of the line directed at those officers. But as I said, you can imagine walking to that line and looking over their shoulders and then going, oh, my God, am I going home yeah. today? And yeah. some of those guys, by personal testimony, called their families when they got would get a break and, and told their wives, uh, tell the kids, I love them. I may not be home today. Sure. They had no idea what was coming at them. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, in a situation that large with that many human beings, you know, uh, it, it's very difficult to pin things down. And I think that just, like you said, it lends itself to the conspiracy, uh, theories, but, what one of the things that I like about your reporting though, Steve, is that you, you try to stick to the facts, you know, 
uh, and the facts are what are what are going to help us solve the yeah. the questions, you know, and answer the questions. And uh, that last article, you lay, you just lay out the facts of the the unasked questions about Ray Epps uh, by the New York Times and sixty Minutes and MSNBC and all you know and Adam King Kinzinger. Uh, and yes. that's what I have a problem with is uh, is they choose not to ask the questions about the facts that you know about. You were there. Yeah. Uh, you've seen the CCTV video. A lot of us do. Uh, and, and I like the way you put it in your article. Uh, you know, you, we didn't create the conspiracy theory. The lack of uh, answering question, the questions is what has created the conspiracy theory. And that's right. really coming from the media and the government. That's right. And and when the FBI is asked in senatorial or congressional testimony, was Ray Epps an agent or a uh, confidential human source or some sort of operative working for the FBI? And the FBI itself says, I can't answer that question. Right. Okay. Is that because they were under oath? that they wouldn't answer that question. And then you send it back into the, the sphere of the news media. So now you, so mm -hmm. now they hand the ball off. All right. So we go from that congressional or that senatorial, um, uh, committee testimony, then they hand the ball off. Let's go to the January 6th house select committee then. And then J Ray Epps, first of all, does an interview in which we never get to see the content of. He right. did, he, he participated in an interview that ended up never being released to the public. And it was archived into the national archives for the, what they're telling us now could be 20 to 50 years before that document will be released. And then they released his second interview, which was, uh, there's no other way to say it. It was, it was uh, so obviously scripted, so obviously softball. I mean, they were th those um, uh, Congress members were giving him leading questions, mm -hmm. and then and, and then asking him questions exactly just as, as as a for instance. If you are a uh, witness in a, a criminal trial for instance, and you are a witness for the defense. And then the defense attorney comes up and does the direct examination and then says to you, wouldn't you say that? And you, right. you're basically giving them the leading question uh, to answer the prepared uh, you know, rehearsed answer for the presentation because that's what happens in, in these trials. And the same thing happens on the other side. The government has their witnesses and then they walk up there and, and they, they ask the leading questions that have already been rehearsed. They've, the, the witness has already been prepped. And that's exactly what we got from the Ray Epps testimony uh, that was the one that was released to us in the public transcripts. And, and it was laughable when we saw that. And we, you know, and I wrote about it. We commented on it. I did a whole tweet storm on it when that, yeah. when that document came out. And then and then that then the ball is handed off to the media. Well, you already had uh the New York Times do their puff piece on him and then uh now it's been handed off to 60 minutes and one wonders and one has to ask the question, what is going on with the timing of this and why yet again are they putting Ray Epps on a national left-wing, 
you know, mainstream media um, uh, bullhorn and once again defending him without asking the hard questions because nobody will do that. And that ultimately is the, uh, the problem that I see with, as you said, or quoting what I, what I presented in my article last night, was we didn't create the conspiracy theory. You did. You yeah. did government, uh, Department of Justice. You did FBI. You did New York Times. You did 60 Minutes. You created the conspiracy theory because you won't ask the hard questions. And, as I, as, and, as, and the theme that I kept going back to in that article, and it is a theme that I have held throughout this entire January 6th uh, uh, debacle, is that it, it, it is and it is, it, it's the lies of omission that keeps the conspiracy alive. It's the lies of omission that convicted the Oath Keepers in the first trial. It's the lies of omission that I saw every single day from that media room because those um, uh, mainstream large bullhorn uh, press individuals, they, would, they, they told the truth. What they, what they wrote in their columns that I read every night, whether it was CNN, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, NPR down the line, Reuters, AP, blah, blah, blah. They're all there in the room. I would read their stories. And the one thing that I noticed was everything they wrote was accurate. It's what they left out that didn't allow the story to be accurately told. And I was, I was pointing that out during the trial, as you remember, during, uh, yeah. during my own tweet storms uh, from, from the uh, media room at that trial. And that was the biggest problem. And that was a huge eye-opening experience for me to be looking at the back of the heads of these other professional journalists and then read their stories tonight and then come back in the next morning. And, and I, unspoken, I would just kind of stare at them and go, and in my head, I'm going, did you watch the same trial I did yesterday? And of course they did, but sure. they, they have the restrictions of the narrative, uh, their own personal agenda. And of course, obviously their editorial, uh, constrict, you know, restrictions that they have to, uh, adhere to, uh, in those, uh, uh, those big, uh, news service newsrooms. And that I, uh, being an independent, I, I don't have any restrictions. There's no, yeah. I don't have any strings or anybody pulling, you know, yanking my chain. So I was able to just call it out for what it was as I saw it. Now, now you say you just said it uh, uh, for a second or third time is that what the, what these folks are reporting is accurate. Uh, uh, but my, one of my questions is, is that, uh, and you mentioned it earlier in our discussion is that the word insurrection uh, is used. Yeah uh over and over again to build this narrative mm -hmm. yeah. uh it, it, it i just think that somebody that's defended our national security in this country for over three decades of his life uh <laughs> I, I just i just find that uh, uh potentially very damaging to the united states it is and that that certainly is a huge uh, inaccuracy, but it's part of that narrative that Pelosi called for on the first anniversary of the event and all of those um, commemorative events that she put together that week in the in January, the first week of January of 2022. And she specifically opened those events by saying we are looking to, and this is an exact quote, to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th. 
And that's what they have done. And they have had the assistance of not only the, the mainstream press bullhorns, they have had the assistance of big tech because mm -hmm. obviously big tech blocked us out from being able to report accurately. Um, I, I mean, just still today, I mean, putting my story about um, Ray Epps that I wrote last night on Facebook, just, just, you can just see the, the algorithms throttle it down and, and yank me down. Um, I, I can put a stupid meme out there about, um, you know, Bud Light or something like that and get uh, 100,000 views and 2,000 likes or, or, you know, whatever. But if I put a real news story out there, whether it's about January 6th or whether it's about COVID-19 or anything else that, that they need and feel that, they, that, that the narrative needs to be controlled, all of a sudden, my, nobody, I, you know, 40, over 40,000 followers on my, just my Facebook page alone, and when only 300, 500, 600 people see it, you know that, that the algorithm has me smashed because of the key words in that story. Yeah, I have over 200,000 followers on my Facebook page, and I'm very lucky if 1% uh, oh. actually gets to see anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's exactly uh, right. and, and it's just another, you know, suppression of the facts, you know. Uh, and, and look, I, I'm a Trump supporter, uh, but I wanted to get you on here because I know you're not one, mm -hmm. uh, and you're not wedded to a political and ideological viewpoint on the situation uh that happened on january 6 but but the lack of the factual reporting and the bits that you know yeah what they do put out is true the mm -hmm. truth or factual fact based uh but but the bits they leave out helps establish and reinforce this narrative uh that nancy pelosi uh has said uh mm -hmm. we want to do want to preserve and i just think that's so dangerous uh for the country uh, for them to be able to get away with that. The, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the other big questions, uh, that I think people should know is that when you wrote your article that we're talking about, you laid out factual pieces of information about Ray Epps and what he knew and what he did. And it's all based on the facts. So you mentioned in there that, uh, when you're talking about the FBI, you know, you you didn't see any restricted area signs. You didn't see any closed area signs. So they, uh, you know, all you had to do is tell them the truth when they were trying to press you on it on right. on admitting to to violating a restricted area. But Ray Epps, he knew. <laughs> I mean, it's all uh, between your videos, the CCTV video, and other videos. Uh, you know, I think you put a still in your article that shows the the barricade of the first breach. Uh, yeah. where uh, Carolyn was injured, uh, and uh, it's right there, closed area, right on those on those bicycle racks. Exactly. Uh, you know, so it just puzzles me why he's being protected like this. Because it, I mean, we is. we are sending, and I think you mentioned the one lady that I that that, I, that is most egregious to be the 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 older lady that has cancer is going to probably go to prison for some period of time if she hasn't already. Yeah, I think she. Uh, I think she did her two months already. Yeah, but but even a day, of uh, for for those nonviolent crimes like that, uh, when Ray Epps is right there on video, he's right there before January sixth, encouraging people to go into the Capitol. I mean, of all the people, of all the Americans uh, that uh, that could be charged, he's not one. 
Yeah, and you would think that they would at least give him some sort of slap on the wrist to yeah. try and tamper down the conspiracy theories and shut everybody up. And I mean, let's let's charge him with uh, three or four misdemeanors. Let's drag him through the process. Let's uh, bring him out on the other end with a slap on the wrist, two years, three years probation, $2,000 fine, something like that, and shut everybody up. And then they can just go, hey, he's convicted of the crimes he committed. All right. Yeah. He didn't. We don't have him on uh, video committing violence. That's a little bit controversial because he did have his hands on that big, giant, um, racked sign that was being pushed and used as a basically a battering ram against the police officers and mm -hmm. other individuals who had their hands on that sign were in fact charged and convicted of violence. He had his hands on that sign and he was not charged for that. So there's again, once again, there's some selective uh, uh, prosecution going on from the department of justice just in that uh, situation alone. And then as, as we've already said, because when, when I write in the article that ignorance of the law is no excuse, that of course is a misinterpretation of, of uh, you know a, an older um, axiom, but it, it's basically the the way the the way that the legal um, notion of that of that old saying or yarn is that ignorance of the law that you should know about is no excuse. Right. And that's why I wrote in the article that every first year law student knows that that bromide is, is incorrect. Ignorance of the law is in fact, often an excuse in a trial or in defense of yourself, because there's, you know, there's a million laws on the books. We can't possibly no no attorney can possibly know all the laws that are on the book. As we, you know, as we've heard before, the average person commits between three and five felonies a day, and we don't know that we're doing that. Um, True. And, and that's why uh, one of, you know, Stalin's aides said, show me the man, show, I'll show you the crime. Because, right. because we, it's impossible for us to obey every law. And so with that context laid, this is a man who could easily be convicted and not be able to sit in an FBI interview and say that he didn't know that he was entering a restricted area as I was able to successfully do because they knew that I was telling the truth. By the time I arrived exactly where that barricade was, where he breached it at 1252, that barricade was gone. Those signs yeah. were gone. There were hundreds of people that had already preceded me into that area. And we have the video in the film of, of the, those early provocateurs who obviously had the sign. There were people who had their job was to cut that fencing. They brought, who goes to a Trump rally and brings wire snippers with them. And that's on video. I've seen the videos yes. of that individual, those individuals, Rolling up does the, that? the snow fencing. Right. This is this is a job yeah. that he had that day, and that was his. And as he rolled them up, and then he turned them over, and he flipped the signs over, and then they were taking barricades and throwing them over, you know, uh, concrete and brick uh, brick uh, walling to get it out of the way and out of the sight sight of the thousands of people that would be arriving after them. This happened. We have the video. This is not controversial. I mean, a lot of people haven't seen it because obviously, as I also wrote in this article, if, it, if, uh, if, if the Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, CBS, NBC, ABC don't say it, then it never happened. Well, right. because, because over half of the country has never seen those videos, they don't know that this happened, but it did. Yeah. It took place. And I don't, I don't think a lot of those folks have been identified and caught yet. No, 
No. The, uh, I, those are the ones that I want to see caught, yes. uh, tried, uh, and convicted. You know, get a fair trial if you can get one still under this situation. <laughs> I, I'm not convinced that that no. will ever happen again uh, uh, for anybody involved in this. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, if if not for any of us, quite honestly, that are of the wrong political persuasion, depending on who's in power. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it just. Uh, you know, you would think these sedition hunter folks uh, sitting wherever they're at would be going after those folks nonstop. You know, the scaffold commander guy, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the individuals rolling up the snow fence and throwing the barricades over the walls. Those are all pieces and parts to the beginning of the story of the violence that need to be answered. You yes. know, and a lot of the conspiracy theories... Uh, uh, will, will be addressed with the facts if we can find the facts on those individuals, don't you think? Well, I'm I'm convinced because I know uh, this is, and this is also not conspiracy. Uh, we know for a fact that the sedition hunters and a couple of other groups, the capital hunters, and there's uh, there's a couple of other of these um, what mm -hmm. they call open source intelligence groups that are looking for these individuals. Um, they work very closely with the FBI, with the Department of Justice, and with members of the mainstream media. And I have absolutely, and I'm, I am now offering you opinion, but it's, exper it's experiential, <laughs> experientially based, uh, that there is enough coordination and collusion going on between these groups that there are, in fact, certain individuals they do not want looked at. And for that reason, we will A, never know who they are, or B, they will be eventually corralled and given some sort of slap on the wrist, which again goes back to Ray Epps, which is still, uh, that that makes no sense to me that he has not been. I mean, it, there is a guy here that is um, fragrantly, blatantly mm. guilty of very specific crimes. He is the most photographed he is the uh, most videoed uh, inciter, provocateur of moving people toward and into the Capitol that day. And by all video evidence, he knew that he was participating in the breaching of restricted areas. For that reason alone, he should be charged with something. And yet, with and it's mind-boggling and again as i pointed out okay first of all the department of justice the entire left-wing press and all of the uh grassroots left-wing voters in this country think that the oath keepers were the tip of the spear and are literally the <laughs> most vile evil yeah. seditionist insurrectionist white supremacist right-wing extremist of any group on the planet this is, this is how the Oath Keepers have been characterized since day right. one. That's right. All right. Well, Ray Epps used to be a member of the Oath Keepers. All right. He's a rabid Trump supporter. Okay. He's an election denier <laughs> on yeah. top of that. Uh, he, and then he's on video telling people to go into the Capitol. Then he's on video literally breaching, fenced off, do not enter signs, patrolled and guarded by law enforcement officers that were pushed over and violently injured by the group that he was with. And for some reason, 
the entire left-wing universe circles wagons around him. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. Well, maybe we can in in this uh, this discussion uh, with an eye on uh, something that will tease people about it. You mentioned this in your article. Uh, tell tell me about the red flare. Oh God! And the eight guys. Now, keep in mind, folks. This Ray Epps guy is on record saying that he was there. I think by himself. Uh, and. Uh, and on record with a text message to one of his family members that says that, yeah, I was there right up front, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing now, uh, and I orchestrated it. Uh, I think orchestrated is one of the words that he used in his text messages. Uh, but, but at the very end there, and you point this out in your article, talk to this audience about these eight men, uh, the red flare, and all of a sudden these eight men come up and they basically escort Epps somewhere. What well, is going on there? Yeah, I'll, I'll lay the groundwork on that a little bit. When 60 Minutes started the advanced promotion for their uh, feature of uh, Ray Epps this past Sunday night, they were running, I mean, just all over social media, Facebook and Twitter and everywhere. They were running all these short, you know, 30 second to one minute clips of the interview. And, uh, and I mean, they really were, I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen them hype an interview like that before. I, I you know, I, I follow because I follow uh, mainstream news services. I follow them. I had never seen so many different individual clips for any interview they've ever done. And that's, going back as far back as I can remember. But they were obviously hyping this interview for some reason. So finally, on Twitter, I took the link from uh, uh, Gary McBride's, uh, which is, uh, he, what does he call it? I think it calls it M5 News. And he's, yeah, he's, the equal, he's the equal opposite guy of the Sedition Hunters, okay? He's on the other side, and he is doing the same kind of open source intelligence video work, uh, uh, from from his you know uh, his bedroom or, or dining room table or wherever he does his work, and he's been working on the other side trying to uncover and show these discrepancies that you and I have been talking about about especially especially these uh, unnamed uh, conspirators or provocateurs or unidentified uh, co-conspirators in the crowd. And so, one of the things that he stumbled on back here a couple of months ago was he he was able to access some of that hidden video. Now, I, I have no idea what his sources are. I know what mine are. Uh, I know why I've been able to access some of that information because of my work with some of the uh, defense teams on uh, the, in the Oath Keepers trial. And I actually signed the court protect, protective order. So I was given access to a lot of things that I can't talk about, I can't write about, and I can never show. Or I, or I would, in fact, land myself in prison for contempt of court. Sure, yeah. And the... Uh, Point being is, is he was able to access some of this uh, capital CCTV um, from the west side, long range shot going down, and he was able to zoom in, and he was able to first of all identify Ray Epps at the second breach. So he found him at that second breach, and then as you go forward in this particular video um, a compilation that he has, now then you now you're jumping forward an hour and a half or more in time. And this was after the the final uh, uh, swarm of protesters were 
had overwhelmed the police, as they say, or the pullback had happened, whatever the case may be. The point right. being is, is that now there is no more restrictions from law enforcement on the west side, and just thousands of people are up and over. They're on the upper terrace. They're on the balconies. They're everywhere. It, it's just it's a pile of people by the thousands, sea of people. And he was able to zoom in and identify Ray Epps in the crowd. So he circles him in that crowd, and then all of a sudden, you see a red flare go off about maybe 10 feet from where, where Ray Epps is. And instantly, Ray Epps is then escorted out of that crowd. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's like a snake because it's, they're in that, uh, you know, what, they, what they, <laughs> the Department of Justice referred to in the Oath Keepers trial as the military stack formation. Yeah, Basically, they're, they're in a single file line. And you can see, yeah. you know, a couple of them got their, their, their hands on the shoulders of the, mm -hmm. the person in front. Well, Ray Epps is in the middle. There's four men in front, four men in back, and they start winding their way through this massive crowd and working their way out. And he zooms in and he's able to identify. And they're, you know, and Ray Epps stuck out like a sore thumb. You know, six, yeah. four, six, five. He's got the camouflage gear in and the red hat. And he's just a big guy and he was easy to identify in the crowd. But then to, to have him escorted out by these eight uh, other men leads us to a question. And that's why when all this promotion from, from 60 Minutes happened, I posted on one of their promo ads and said, and I posted the link to that, that video and said, are you going to show this video? And of course, nobody responded from uh, CBS for 60 Minutes. <laughs> and, and, um, and of course, they didn't answer. And of course, they didn't show it. And I, and I even said, um, when I posted it, I said, uh, you know, I'm going to, I forget exactly how I said, it, I, I, you know, bet a month's wages or whatever that you're not going to show, you know, this, this video in your, in your story. And of course they didn't even show any of that. They didn't come yeah. close to showing the, 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 the more expository uh, evidence against Ray Epps behavior that day. And, and of course, especially not that, because now you have to ask the most difficult question of all. In your testimony, Mr. Ray Epps, before the House Select Committee, and in these interviews that you have done with New York Times and otherwise, you have said that you were there in D.C. only because your son and his friend were going, and you and your wife talked about it and said, well, you know, I need to go there and, you know, make sure he's safe because, you know, yeah. people come out at night and everything. So the only reason you got on the plane and you flew out there was to be there with your son and his friend, and that's it. No advanced planning, no coordination with anybody else. But for some reason, when that red flare goes off, suddenly you have eight protectors to escort you out of that crowd. Who were those men? Where did you meet them? And how did they know at that moment to take you out of that crowd? Well, I showed just two weeks ago today, I was sitting down with a, uh, I have to be really careful because... <laughs> He, he's a confidential source, so I have to be careful about and it's a very it's a very elite group of special forces from the United States military. Uh, I've already talked about them being from the Army, so I don't mind saying that. But he happened to be a member, not on the day he was elsewhere, but he happens to be a member of the um, special forces unit that I identified as having been embedded in the crowd that day. And I, I identified that for the first time back in my second article, all the way going back to February of 2021. And uh, so I'm interviewing him two weeks ago today, and I showed him that video. And I do this regularly when I'm interviewing people. You know, I, I've interviewed uh, Treasury uh, Department agents. I've interviewed uh, former mm -hmm. FBI. I've interviewed um, 
uh, of course, I've, I've developed a, a network of, of capital police um, sources. And I show when I sit down with them in person and I show them videos, I'm getting information, I'm getting reactions from their right. their areas of expertise. My area of expertise is not the special forces of, <laughs> of any service of the military or otherwise. And so when I show them these things, I'm looking for reactions, I'm looking for commentary, I'm looking for them to give me analysis from their perspective, and as I said, from their professional experience. And in this particular instance, as he watched that video, the first thing he said, he said, the red flare, he said, we would, we would call that an avalanche signal. I said, what's an avalanche signal? He says, get out now. Yeah. And, and as you can see, he said, it was instantly within seconds after that red flare went off that the eight men formed up around Ray Epps and started walking him out. And he said, from my professional experience, he said, I'm just telling you that's planned and that's coordinated. It absolutely is planned and coordinated. Uh, I've been in command of uh, large groups of men and women uh, in law enforcement and security. And uh, it absolutely is. I can confirm what he said. Uh, so Steve, thank you very much for spending this time with us and, and helping get more facts out. You know, I mean, the more we can do this, the, uh, the better off I think the whole country is uh, if folks can just find the information and and uh, listen to it uh, uh, and uh, and just lay the facts on the table. And that's what you do. Tell folks where they can find you uh, and uh, how to support your work. Yeah, uh, I am. Um, I'm actually not on Substack. I'm on Locals, which, of course, uh, is uh, kind of Substack-like. Uh, yeah. You know, you know uh, Glenn Greenwald just moved over from Substack, Substack to Locals recently. Uh, but uh, all my work is there. I can be found. I'll, I'll give you the long URL first, uh, and then I'll give you the short version. It's the, the pragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. The pragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. Or... Uh, on your phone app or device app, or you can enter it in your browser as well. I've, I've, I've shortened that URL up for access. It's tpc4usa.com. Uh, TPC okay. for you at the number four USA.com. And that, of course that's where you can find me everywhere else. That's where uh, it's, it's at TPC for USA on Twitter at TPC for USA on, on Facebook and Gab and uh, wherever else, uh, wherever else we, I don't even, I don't even remember <laughs> where we all are, <laughs> but, uh, but um, you can either type in the pragmatic constitutionalist or type in uh, TPC for USA and it, it'll, it'll get you there. But um, locals is, is our home base. And, okay. uh, and while it's, you know, it's free to subscribe there, but then like, the, like the other site, uh, sites similar to that, there are paid, uh, levels where you yeah. can support us for as little as five bucks a month or just one-time donations. So yes, we definitely need that. Okay. Well, yeah, uh, I, I fully understand that you do need that. And, uh, we will mention that at every point, uh, to get out and support people like you, because, uh, it's very important, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, the big types like the New York Times, they got the billions of dollars, uh, uh, but they don't have they don't put all the facts out and they choose yeah. not to do that. So we've got to make sure we have people out there that are that have the courage to do that. And my friend, you are uh, one that does. And uh, I think you're an American hero and I uh, hope you keep going. Someday I want to get you back on the show so we can talk about your music profession. Ah. Uh, no. and spend uh, 30 minutes to an hour discussing that uh, and people can learn more about you because I learned that this time around. Mm. I didn't know that about you. Mm. Uh, no. So uh, uh, that uh, uh, I'll be excited to look forward to that if you get the time to do it someday. Awesome. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you, Steve. God bless you and have a great one. You too. Steve Baker, the pragmatic constitutionalist, folks. Uh, follow him on Twitter and all the other social media. It's at TPC4, the number four, USA, uh, and uh, TPC4USA.com. Uh, support him. Uh, he needs your help uh, in order to keep doing what he's doing. Uh, what has really become a profession for him, in my opinion, uh, an independent journalist, recorder of the facts, and reporter of the facts. That's what we need here in the United States of America today. Uh, thank you all, and until next week, I'm Rob Mance.